I'm Anna Bogutskaya. And I'm Clarice Lockery. And this is the Next Supremes, an American Horror Story Rewatch podcast. In this episode, Bloody Face kills people in both timelines and an exorcism takes place at Briarcliff. This is a heavy exorcism episode. <laughs> yeah, this is quite a violent one, isn't it? Yeah, I guess because, um, yeah, exorcisms tend to not be fun for the, the people being exorcised and the people doing the exercising. They're fun for us, though. The audience. Fun for us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the episode begins with the then present day, which is a weird sentence. Uh, so we're in 2012 and Adam Levine, who now only has one arm, I refuse to call him by character name. He is Al- Adam Levine. <laughs> and Jenna Dewan Tatum, they're being chased through the abandoned bar cliff by Bloody Face. I feel a bit weird about this being used to frame a couple of episodes now like there isn't that much of a thing in it do you think yeah because like look we know she's probably not gonna get out of this situation let's be realistic it's american horror story (laughs) it's the chances the chances are statistically low and i think to to sort of keep the suspense in that way of being like, ooh, will she be able to get well, away? Will this this uh, attractive, famous person be able to escape? And it's like, well, we kind of know what the answer's going to be, so you can wrap it up now. <laughs> yeah, like, thank you very much. We're done. Um, I mean, as long as Adam Levine's character gets killed, I'm going to be happy, and it's pretty clear that he is going to die, so... I'm okay with it. I'm okay with that part of it. (laughs) Just willing the deaths of pop stars. I hate him so much. (laughs) Can't control it. And, uh, (laughs) And so we jump to another bloody face murder uh, in 1964. So this is kind of the the beginning of Lana's storyline in the episode, we see her girlfriend Wendy, who is incredibly regretful of having signed over and actually sectioned her partner in Barcliff. And she's now convincing herself to renege on her statement and get Lana out. But before she can do that, she gets attacked in her house by bloody face as well. Uh, what did you make of that scene and kind of a bloody face as an antagonist so far uh do you, th- do you find him interesting i mean he's just a bit texas chainsaw massacre at the moment <laughs> right i feel yes. like you know he's just like guy in a, a skin mask <laughs> um it's not you know like we, we don't really know what the hook is with him yet so he is mm. he's quite generic i guess at, at the moment which is a weird thing to say about a serial killer you know i would i would like to know more about this this intriguing gentleman <laughs> and his murdering sprees uh i also think wendy's friends are really mean to her did you think that oh 
Um, I focused a lot more kind of on her. And I mean, yeah, her friend who, Barb, who is talking to her is a little bit dismissive. And I don't think there's as much weight put on on that scene as maybe thematically it merits because the fact that Lana and Wendy are two women living together and are kind of Wendy's especially extremely aware of the secrecy in which their relationship needs to exist at that point in time. Um, there's quite a lot of, you know, this is probably the biggest emotional drama so far. The fact that Lana has been betrayed by, you know, her partner and it kind of gets really dismissed by her friend, doesn't it? Yeah. And the fact that she says that um, nothing makes sense, like Halloween doesn't make sense to her anymore, which, as you know, we've spoken about before, Halloween very important, mm. and it's very tragic that Halloween... Halloween's been ruined for Wendy. That's so upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like her friends could be more supportive about that. And it's so sad, and the kids are at the door, and she's like, I don't have any candy. Like, oh, Wendy! <laughs> oh, I just want Wendy to have a nice Halloween. Do you think that's why? She, that's why she gets murdered. <laughs> she didn't have candy. Bloody face is actually just three children <laughs> in a man suit. Give us candy! Oh my god, that would. <laughs> um, I, I would love that. I would love that to happen, and that's why they grow up, and then. You know, that's where they can continue to kill in 2012. It all makes sense. Exactly. They just start taking turns (laughs) in 2012. And what we didn't see from the pilot episode was them, was was Adam Levine and and Jenna Dewan being stopped by somebody being like, hey, do you have any candy? Like, I could love, that'd be really weird if you're stopped on the street. (laughs) Do you have any candy? I would really like some candy right now. (laughs) They're like, no, sorry, we don't carry any candy on us because we're healthy LA people. <laughs> and then the person goes on and puts on the bloody face mask. I think this is a really weird tangent. I'm sorry. That would be <laughs> such an amazing contribution. And I think they totally missed the trick by not hiring you in 2011 to be in the writer's room for this season. So, well, look, there's still more seasons. <laughs> so if you want me to write the the candy murderer storyline i'm free also we both know that adam levine's character let's let's try to separate the person from the character i'm gonna really try you know for a fact he would be the sort of person who'd give kids like kale chips on halloween oh yes (laughs) i hate him i mean that's why i would never want to be a child living in la because you'd never get any candy on halloween yeah. Just get celery. <laughs> and like uh Luna bars. Or like apples. Oh, but it's unnatural. Yeah. Although did you know there was a massive hysteria yeah. in the States like years ago about there being razor blades and apples? So kids were encouraged to not eat apples? Yes. When they got them for Halloween? Why well, yeah. Well, I think there was a general hysteria around candy. Because mm. I, I feel like I have a vague memory of being a child and, like, being conscious of that and, like, checking the candy. Oh. There was, like, a lot of, like, consciousness of, like, you know, don't just shove, put your hand in the thing and, like, 
<laughs> shove it into your mouth. <laughs> so maybe I don't know. Maybe the hysteria was still around when I was a child. I mean, I, I. But yeah, yeah, I have a very vague memory <laughs> of like the candy being suspicious. <laughs> don't trust the candy. <laughs> I mean, this was never an issue when I was growing up because you don't really celebrate Halloween in Spain. Although one time when I was a little kid. I because I really wanted to do Halloween. I did force my dad to go with me around the apartment block, all dressed up, asking for candy, and people were very confused. Oh, <laughs> I mean that was true of the UK until very recently. Because mm. when we moved here, when I was a kid, like you tried to go trick or treating, and people were like, "What? <laughs> it's so have a jacket." <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. British people. Wow. <laughs> Kids these days will never know the pain of being a kid asking for candy in a country that doesn't celebrate Halloween. <laughs> Does not celebrate Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to continue with Lana's storyline, she is now a patient in Briarcliff and she insists that she's innocent and that she remembers everything. And to essentially force her to forget, she gets administered electroshock treatment, which is an incredibly brutal scene. What did you think of it? Yeah, it's it's the moment where it's sort of... I mean, because we're going from Bloody Face, which is this sort of heightened horror genre piece, to you know something which they really do shoot it and stage it as realistically as possible i mm -hmm. think i mean it yeah it felt very just real mm. and incredibly upsetting on that level yeah and sarah paulson's performance here as well like it's very it's incredibly visceral and i thought it was very interesting the fact that you know aside from the the very graphic and very um realistic approach to showing the electroshock treatment that she receives it's also this idea that she then becomes even more resolute to document her memories and her thoughts she starts making these notes because the electroshock affects her memory she can remember sort of even long-term stuff but she it's implied that it's a it's going to affect her short-term memory so she starts making notes of everything that happens around Barcliffe every day in order to uh, because she can no longer trust her mind which I think kind of is a very interesting proposition you know the idea of this you know the very the very simple idea of kind of a, a sane woman trapped in an insane asylum and needing to grasp on to her sense of reality so that so kind of to very actively avoid being convinced that there is anything wrong with her mind yeah and I was really struck as well by the way that throughout this episode you still see the marks of yes. it on the side of her her forehead um like this sort of like gruesome like bruise but you sort of see that it's it's like quite like a gruesome injury and the fact that she sort of bears this very visible, you mm -hmm. know, so like everyone in 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 the asylum knows what they did to her because it's it's on mm -hmm. her her face now. Um, 
yeah I was really struck by that it's like a very sort of simple but but haunting image yeah and it's that sort of um it's that sort of detail that I think in this episode in particular and I think you know we could we could probably I can quite confidently say that about the rest of the season even though you know I haven't watched it rewatched it all yet it does take the approach to the brutality of some of the the therapy techniques in 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 very heavy air quotes here that were applied to people with mental illnesses or how people were deemed to be uh mentally ill and kind of needing to be isolated from society is extremely extremely disturbing on a whole nother level on a much more kind of real life horror level yeah i feel like in this episode like it really knows when to be camp and when to just be sort of really grounded and really serious about something like the fact that it can sort of go between those those two extremes and and it's smart about it and you don't have any sort of weird jarring between it all i think it's like really impressive and i think when american horror story does it Mm -hmm. right it is just like yeah because it's just really it's really hard to do that and to do it well like bravo yeah absolutely (laughs) bravo right (laughs) (laughs) and on that note we also meet a new character dr oliver threatstone who arrives to briarcliff with the express intention well he arrives at briarcliff to with the task of diagnosing whether kit is insane and therefore unable to stand trial or whether he is sane and uh, needs to you know be held accountable for his crimes as bloody face because people think that kid is bloody face um and they have this interesting interview basically where dr threatstone is trying to see if kid is insane and he is talking about alma and him being abducted by creatures aliens whatnot what did you make of the of that scene in particular it's interesting because then he tells Alma like, "Oh, I can, I couldn't fake being crazy. I couldn't do it." Um, because she she asked him like, "Oh, did you spit at mm-hmm. him or did you like scream and and yell and stuff?" And he's like, "No, I couldn't do it." But it's like, yeah, but you just you did talk about aliens <laughs> for like ten minutes, so like I think you got the job yeah. done. <laughs> like it's weird that he doesn't he doesn't have awareness that like obviously what he's saying you know, doesn't come across as, as fully logical. Let's say that. Yeah. But he does have that um he does have that innate innocence. Which I think kind of comes up uh, as well in the same way as we kind of talked a lot about Tate Langdon uh in Murder House being kind of really oscillating between seeming as an innocent troubled kid and as a pure uh psychopath. Evan Peters kind of has really dials up the the doe-eyed innocent who's just very you know simple and this weird thing happened to him and that's that's the only story he knows he doesn't really know how to lie even though what he says does sound crazy but i guess it's the same thing as tate Mm. i mean at this moment we don't we don't really know what whether what kit's saying is true or not the fact that grace is so ready to trust him it's like hmm, well what what does she see in mm. him 
I mean, he's very pretty. He does look like Evan Peters. That that explains part of it. I really love and enjoy. Well, I really love and enjoy Zachary Quinto in anything he's in, but I particularly love it here because he plays a skeptic, and he kind of arrives and starts getting all up in Sister Jude's business. He's like, "This is inhumane. This is barbaric." How dare you do electroshock therapy? How dare you treat people this way? This is cruel. And <laughs> this is entirely superficial, but I also love his sort of 1960s nerd outfit. The really big plastic rimmed glasses, the really, you know, tightly wound way that Quinto plays him. It's just perfection, kind of in that in that scenario in particular. Yeah, although I would argue, I don't know, like, I found the the diagnosis that he wrote down. <laughs> I mean, he just wrote down acute clinical insanity, yes. which not to be like, you know, Ben Harmon <laughs> round two, but I feel like you're not really doing your job if you just write, well, he's insane, Bloop. give me a, give me my check, he's insane, he's a crazy person, like, you're not meant to, to be like, he has, like, bipolar disorder you know yeah like like there is you know (laughs) i made a note of that as well because i was like i don't i don't think that's a diagnosis i mean i don't have a degree in psychology or anything medical but i don't think acute clinical insanity is a thing maybe it was a thing in 1964 i mean look yeah maybe but i just feel like if my doctor turned around to be like well, we've done all these tests, and I can say with a hundred percent confirmed, you are insane. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> I think this Doctor Oliver Threadstone, despite you know being played delightfully by Zachary Quinto, is very much a therapist from the school of Ben Harmon, terrible therapist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, moving on from that, we get an exorcism at Barcliffe. So this boy called Jed Potter and his parents arrive and his parents are like, he's possessed. He ate our cow's guts and he's speaking in tongues and is being kind of generally weird. And... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Our son's being just generally weird. (laughs) Sorry, I really love that phrasing of it. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, uh, what else what else would you call we have a diagnosis <laughs> well you know we've read so many tests that i could say with 100 percent confidence that your son is generally quite weird though where's my jack <laughs> well so continuing on to jed's exorcism this is this is very much kind of now supernatural territory like or is it do you think like the the way the show presents that it's pretty much pretty clear that he's actually possessed by some sort of demon or devil or is there any shape is there any space for him being generally weird and not possessed i i think it's he's full satan <laughs> right because he has the little eyes the the little scary demon eyes full satan <laughs> He's gone full Satan. <laughs> oh my god. There's a scale. There's a scale of Satan. 
<laughs> yeah, hit hundred <laughs> percent Satan. Excellent. Yeah, but he has the eyes, and he does the he does the voices. The you know your mother sucks cocks in hell voice, which we'll get back to that. The Exorcist. Shall we stick to the Exorcism storyline because it's it's quite interesting how they orchestrate the exorcism which is performed by the monsignor and uh an additional priest who is called let me just look this up so who is performed by the monsignor and father malaki who is a paraplegic priest that he brings in to help out with the exorcism and it's pretty like this is pretty much literally visually lifted from William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Yeah, it's the same, pretty much. It's fine. It's an homage. It is, and you know, like we mentioned in last week's episode, there's quite a lot of um, cinematic references in this season so far. Um, everything from the way the room was filmed to, you know, the one priest asking for help from an older priest who's got more experience with exorcists to the way that Jed, a possessed Jed, sort of brings up secret information about all the characters. And specifically, he starts taunting Sister Jude. And we get flashbacks of her past. What did you make of those? Interesting. Well, it's interesting. You get like a full uh psychological breakdown of that character why she's there what drives her you know what are her fears her insecurities like it's all sort of wrapped up in her backstory Mm -hmm. was it 1949 the year i believe so yeah definitely the 40s or the late 1940s yeah she's she's in a, a club and she's dressed in in red and she's singing some jazz for the the servicemen all in their uniforms and and she she tries to dance with one of them and she's like hey baby like come on come on nova <laughs> i can't remember what she said actually <laughs> hey baby like you want a, a little <laughs> and he says i got a baby sleeping and she's like no no nobody wants me uh so i mean it's pretty clear by this, at this moment that she she is a sex worker so she's trying to, mm-hmm. to find a client and, and no one seems interested and so she's drinking she's so upset and and she gets in a car and she's drunk driving and and no no she's she's hit a, a young innocent girl with glasses and the glasses are smashed and and she looks like a girl scout which you know makes it well it's just like you know bad <laughs> bad news bad news bads for sister jude <laughs> That was a terrible explanation. <laughs> I'm not on form today. <laughs> I love the bit about the glasses. And it's like, yeah, it's it's so much worse because she looks like a Girl Scout. I mean, she even she's probably like wearing a Girl Scout uniform, to be honest. Yeah, she's got pigtails. <laughs> it's like trying to just crank it up to <laughs> extreme. Yeah, crank up the white girl pity party to extreme. Really, kind of the the main interesting point about the exorcism which ends with jed's death he starts having a heart attack and um dr threatsome tries to save him and fails but the demon or satan we don't know we don't really know yet what this 
thing is, um, he enters Sister Mary Eunice, which are uh, in like a like not not a super subtle, but subtle enough that maybe you know it doesn't necessarily register super strongly yet. But yeah, basically, uh, again in another homage to The Exorcist and. Spoiler alert for The Exorcist, if somebody hasn't seen it yet. Um, at the end of that exorcism, the the demon leaves Reagan's body and enters into Father Karras's body. And then he kills himself so that he can um, protect her and destroy the demon. So uh, when Jed dies, the, the demon or Satan goes into Sister Mary Eunice, who... As far as we know, and as far as we've met her in the previous episode, is a is a very pure young nun. Just loves God and doing chores <laughs> and being caned. She does love a cane. She does love a cane, but no more because she's gone full Satan. <laughs> <laughs> We oh we should talk about Shelly because we get a a nice little backstory for Shelly in this episode. Yeah, yeah, she just explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we learn about Shelly in this episode? Well, because she's trying to seduce Doctor Arden. Yeah, and because Doctor Arden has problems, let's just say that. Um, he's like, no, you whore, you're a whore. That's his favorite yeah, word. Yeah, he loves that. He loves to say the word whore. Um, and. And her response is to just explain her entire backstory to him. <laughs> and that that she she her her mother made her wear mittens because she kept masturbating and then she ran away from home and she fell in with, with the jazz musicians <laughs> and and she married the bass player but then oh the bass player was so misogynistic that he'd go out and he'd have sex with women all the time and then she wasn't allowed to she had to stay home and then scrub his dirty drawers <laughs> and <laughs> so in response he came home one night and she's in bed with two navy guys and she's like i didn't do it for me i was servicing my country <laughs> And so he sends her to Briarcliff. And the whole time, Dr. Arden's just standing there being like, okay? <laughs> it's not going to make me change my mind, but cool. <laughs> Thanks for just explaining your entire backstory to me. I mean, <laughs> I'm so torn with Shelley because I love Chloe Savini, but there is something so jarring about her speaking in such an intensely like 1950s slang. When she says stuff like, Oh, I was just stuck at home washing his dirty drawers. And I was like, that sounds weird. You're you're a nineties kid. Those words did not sound right coming out of your mouth. You know what I mean? Like does it does it just ring a weird bell? Yeah. Well, cause she's such like a modern I don't know. It's weird. Some people are just better at being in like fit better in period pieces and don't I don't know whether I guess it's something about mm the speech pattern like she has a very modern speech pattern and she doesn't really try to alter yeah. it in this show at all you know and i guess because we have these very sort of <laughs> we have these ideas of how people talked in the past so it's yeah. like everybody in the 60s <laughs> and, and 50s was like gee whiz. 
<laughs> you know, like, oh, sir, <laughs> I'm just servicing my country. <laughs> um, you know, so maybe that's the thing. I think it's like us having this sort of very exaggerated idea of how people speak now and how people spoke in the 60s. So I'm sure, I'm sure there are people who spoke just like her in the 60s, but. Mm. Uh, yeah, I get what you mean. You think she's just going to say duh at any point? Yeah, duh. yeah truly. <laughs> and then to stick a little bit with Dr. Arden, we get another scene with him, which is, which I found very chilling, where he, he, hire, he essentially hires a, a sex worker to come to his house, but he is being very weird about it because he kind of prepares a whole meal, but he doesn't really want her to talk. And then he makes her she kind of looks like Lily Rab, so she kind of physically looks like Sister Mary Eunice. And he makes her dress up as a nun. She finds a box full of very disturbing photographs of women being, you know, bound or uh, in violent situations. And she gets freaked out and tries to escape. And there's so many hints, like qu- quite explicit hints. At the fact that Dr. Arden is an extremely weird character. And it's like every single scene with him, James Cromwell plays him with such kind of a, like a chilling presence. You know, like there's these characters or these actors who, even as you don't know his entire story yet, you don't really know what it is that's you know wrong with him. But every single little hint is just so seeped in misogyny and hatred for women that it kind of, I don't know, like I I find him really chilling to watch this time around. Like every single interaction he has with Sister Jude, every single interaction he has with Sister Mary Eunice, who he obviously kind of is lusting after. You know, even his choice of words and the way that he talks and behaves with the with the sex worker is just like that's the sort of man that would like would just give you the creeps like on a on a completely gut instinct level. That won't do, pig. That won't do. <laughs> Sorry, I love the movie, babe. So I find it really difficult to separate the james cromwells of cinema i can um yeah i can see that (laughs) i think i met him um i met him first in his darker roles so i find it really difficult to go back to babe and take him as a i'm just like oh no he hates women (laughs) i mean he and he doesn't i don't think he does (laughs) but dr arden does no no the real life james cromwell seems really cool yeah he seems amazing didn't he get arrested protesting something (sighs) Um, and he's also an extremely tall man apropos nothing to wrap up the episode while Jed is being exercised there's a power outage because he's gone full Satan and Lana, Grace and Kit try to escape but they get caught and they get caught because Lana starts yelling and alerts the guards so then, as a reward, Sister Jude lets her pick out the cane with which she's going to punish Kit and Grace, which is intense. 
deeply uncool. Yeah, very, very sadistic. Yeah. But bless him, Kit uh, decides to take the punishment for Grace as well. So he gets, and um, that's how we end the episode on a caning. True feminist ally. <laughs> Go Kit. Shall we move on to our categories? Yes. Okay. Oh, top quote. When Shelley goes, she's trying to seduce her to Arden, and she goes, bend me over a bread rack and pound me into shape. <laughs> I mean, she's, I love all her innuendos because they're so bad. Like, how's that sexy? Mm, bend me over a bread rack. I love Shelley. <laughs> I think Shelley's my favorite so far. My favorite quote is also a Shelley quote. <laughs> oh, I know which one because it was going to be the other. I was torn between Oh, two. really? Because <laughs> um, mine was, uh, and this has mostly to do mm -hmm. with Chloe Savini's delivery of it, where she goes, my mother made me wear mittens. Was that the one that oh, you wanted? Oh, okay. No. Which one were you thinking? I thought you were going to go with, I have a cucumber in my room, not because I was hungry. <laughs> I did like that one, but I mm -hmm. just love the way that she says the word mittens. She spits it out. <laughs> What about the, the best butt from the episode? Is there a butt? There's multiple butts. Kit? There was a bit of Kit. I feel a little bit torn with this season because the context of the nudity is very rarely sexy. It's it's quite disturbing. Yeah. So it's not really, you know, there for titillation. Being sad nudity. Yeah, sad butt. It could be a sad butt of the episode. Sad butt of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's a season of just really sad butts. In which case, I don't know about you, but I think Kit wins because he volunteers his butt. Very sad butt. Yeah, for double dose of caning. The butt didn't have any say <laughs> in it. So. Moving on to the MVP of the episode, who do you think wins? I know I've used this answer a lot, but I'm going to have to say <laughs> Satan because everyone else is having kind of a bad time in this episode. Um... Even Dr. Arden's kind of, No one's really in power except for, for Satan, who's just zooming around from person to person. I don't know. What did you think? I almost want to say Kit, because of the final scene and because of his kind of... Uh, because of his interaction with Fredstone and his kind of growing friendship with Grace. He's such an honest character. Like, he does not lie. He's He's very pure. And that kind of gives him the moral high ground in the episode overall, over all of his kind of, uh, over all his plot line. Yeah. But I feel like he got sold out by Lana. So I feel like he didn't like win, win the episode because he's still so distrusted by the one person who could have let him escape. Oh, totally. But he does have the moral high ground over her though. He's the moral MVP, True. but Satan does win the moral mvp <laughs> yeah <laughs> satan wins again <laughs> and did you pick up on any insensitive historical references this week not really anything specific to this episode mm. i don't know if you had one uh, well the only one that i could think of was the fact that they used Jed, a 17-year-old uh, boy, as the kind of the victim of the possession, and the fact that visually references the exorcist very explicitly, 
It reminded me of the real-life case in the late 1940s of the exorcism of Roland Doe, which is which was a 14-year-old boy who uh, was an alleged, um, allegedly possessed by uh, demons. And his story was the inspiration for the novel The Exorcist, which came out in the 70s. And that, that was the, the basis of the film as well. So, you know, and in the film, it was um, gender swap. So it was Reagan, a, a teenage girl who was the who was possessed. Uh, but actually, the story itself is based around a young boy. So I thought that maybe that's a hint or a nudge to it. Although I don't think it's necessarily, I don't know if I would call it insensitive. Aside from maybe, you know, just making him eat cow guts. Yeah. And I guess because like the real person was not possessed by Satan because yeah. he's not real <laughs> by at least I don't believe that um I know lots of other people believe other things but um you know well this, this is the first time hearing of Satan not being real <laughs> sorry not to offend any religious people but I personally do not believe <laughs> Satan is real so I guess this would be insensitive because the person in real life probably did just have some kind of mental illness that they just decided was Satan instead of giving him proper treatment. Very fair. And we've already spoken a lot about the filmic references of the episode, mostly The Exorcist, which if somebody hasn't seen it, I totally spoiled the ending for, uh, but is an incredible <laughs> film. <laughs> I do have another one I may, might be a reference. Ooh. Dr. Arden, when he's with the sex mm -hmm. worker, just starts talking about Chopin. And it really reminded me of the speech in American Psycho about Huey Lewis and the news. It's Huey Lewis and the news, right? That he just starts talking oh about. Oh my god, <laughs> yes! Yeah, because I just feel like men talking at length about a music person instantly for me is like a red flag because I just think of American <laughs> Psycho <laughs> it's like this is the prelude to a murder oh my god <laughs> so yeah I don't know if that was intentional or not oh my god but the whole pacing of it seemed very similar I love it I totally did not pick up on it yeah monologue about a musician I'm just monologuing about anything okay. on a day. I don't know. I've monologued about Fast and the Furious quite a bit. True. Maybe there, there are exceptions. <laughs> so what can we expect from the next episode? In the next episode, Briarcliff hosts its first movie night. What are they going to pick? So Is excited. Is it the American Psycho? Who knows? which was not made at the time <laughs> that would be really weird well you know time travel you from the future <laughs> yeah i mean there are a well maybe the aliens this is the twist the aliens host the movie night and um we'll show them american psycho Excellent. as a warning Excellent. <laughs> who does this remind you of <laughs> We'll be back next Wednesday with a recap of American Horror Story Asylum. In the meantime, send us your thoughts on Twitter. I'm on at Clarice Lou. And I am on Anna B. Demented. Ni <laughs> chameau, ni
Provence, il parcourt l'Europe à pied, Scandinavie ou Provence, dans la sainte pauvreté. Dominique et Kenick s'en allaient tout simplement, routier, pauvre et chantant. En tout chemin, en tout lieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu. 